to the DIY Animation Show, where we get to the heart of what it means to be an independent animator. I'm Lauren Morse. And I'm Jessica Dahl. Together with our guests, we'll explore tips, tricks, the psychological, the fundamental, and above all, how to make whatever you can with whatever you've got. From the keys to the breakdowns and everything in between. The timing's right to do it yourself. Let's get rolling! do it hey everybody and welcome to the diy animation show <laughs> hey everybody uh we are here today with the incredibly joyful creator hamish Steele. welcome hamish super happy to have you hello <laughs> <laughs> you may have seen hamish's name popping up lately on the internet because he is the creator and showrunner for netflix's new animated show dead india which is out next year in 2021 yeah, he's also an Eisner Award-winning comic artist, a full-time animation director and writer with Blink Industries, and scene enthusiast. And my favorites have to be your Paul Rudd scene, which I got from <laughs> you at Thought Bubble last year. And I think I've read it about 20 times. And the one about horses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still kind of glad that I can sell the Paul Rudd scene because I feel making a like a zine dedicated to a celebrity is a bit of a risky business, but he seems yes. to stay in his lane quite a lot. <laughs> Still a good seller. Yep. It's, uh, yeah, it's so good. <laughs> it's really amazing. So yeah, if you would like to check out Hamish's work before we get into the interview today, you can head over to hamishsteel.co.uk uh, and that's H-A-M-I-S-H-S-T-E-E-L-E .co.uk um, and yeah check out all of Hamish's super sweet art and all the amazing stuff on there it's really good mm. um, I think that kind of covers anything did we miss anything out that you want to add Hamish? Uh, I'm just excited that my website's about to get a hit <laughs> <laughs> just one <laughs> well maybe it'll be three because it'll be me and Jess as well so <laughs> yeah it's a little out of date because I've um, been working in like NDA and development things sort of mm -hmm. in that land for a really long time. I actually know mm -hmm. a lot of artists are in a similar boat where they, you know, their showreels are like five years out of date and all their best work is secret and might never be seen or, you know, <laughs> sad. It is. It happens. I don't think I've updated my website for years and years because, and also by the time the projects come out I often also forget that I worked on them and then I forget to put a out them all. yeah yeah it's funny mm -hmm. so we are here today to very largely talk about Dead India which if you haven't heard of Dead India it's a story filled with comedy heartbreak and a wonderful focus on the LGBTQ plus uh community and representation it's a big hit with readers uh I love it. I <laughs> I, uh, I binged it recently. It was just fabulous. <laughs> Anyways, um, so the story itself follows the adventures of Barney and Norma, uh, two humans who stumble upon the supernatural secrets of Dead End, Ooh. which is an amusement park haunted house. 
uh, along with a diverse cast of both human and supernatural characters. It's yeah. like, it's such a great read. I, uh, uh, I started it and I think I finished it in like in a night. I was just like, more. <laughs> fabulous. I, I actually started it and finished it and I drew it in a night. So that's, oh, man. Good yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so impressive yeah just just perfect that's so cool yeah oh my gosh so from that it's super exciting to see the path that dead India has taken starting out um i think as the animated short dead end for fred mm-hmm. Rainer, which you can find on youtube that was really fun uh yeah. and then yeah your comic on tumblr started and finished in an evening it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) it's like Uh, oh my gosh uh no it took a well i'll I'll say i think it um i wanted to do the webcomic like vaguely in real time so um it's like christmas in the comics when it's christmas in the in real life um so it was about a year and a half awesome for the webcomic up until like a year and a half contents worth is what's in the book version that's so cool so yeah and then it was um was it picked up by no brow press but certainly published into a physical physical graphic novel which is very exciting yeah i was doing another i got another graphic novel called pantheon which is oh yeah sometimes hard to sell because it's incredibly adult but looks like very similar to um dead end in terms of like as a item um and so yeah i think i was still doing the webcomic on the side and after publishing pantheon with no brow they wanted uh to publish dead endia which is a mm-hmm. webcomic and then i did a second book with them which isn't based on the webcomic it's just a continuation of it's kind of like several Dead Endia timelines now. Is, like, that, uh, that, is that the Broken Halo or? Yes. Nice. So that's okay, a, cool. A yeah. Perfect. That's awesome. And then is it true? Is, there's a, is there a third one in development? Um, I was actually working on a um, sequel to Pantheon. I was doing a Norse oh. mythology oh. one. Um, and I'm still on track to do that. But I think... Um, uh, I'm I'm not certain. I want to do a third book for sure. A third book will happen. I've always imagined it as a trilogy, but um, I think I think the second Pantheon book was going to come out the same like month as the Dead Endia TV show or something. So I was like, maybe you'd prefer a Dead Endia book to come out that month, and so. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, rather than like an adults only Norse mythology book, which uh, might be a bit hard to sell on that wave of, well, I hope uh-huh. support might be hatred. But um, uh, yeah, so more Dead End is coming uh, in book form. Not exactly Ooh. sure when or how, but it'll come. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's so bright and bold and beautiful in all of its visuals and the writing and the relationships that it shows within it it's it's so good we're really excited for it thank you very much yeah and as we have already touched on mm-hmm. low dead india was greenlit as a netflix animated series so woo, congrats again for that because that is <laughs> yeah. huge that's so cool um, that is huge yeah yeah uh so actually so speaking on that speaking on that dead india you know is a story that seems like it is very near and dear to your heart that you've worked on for years 
And, you know, we just got to ask, what were your feelings when you learned that this original story you'd been working on for so long would become a Netflix show? Which, again, I can't stress enough. Huge congrats for that. That's amazing. It's so cool. <laughs> Thank you. It is amazing. Yeah. I, I think from the outside world, it looks like these kind of decisions are quite sudden and uh, come out of nowhere. Um, the story of getting Dead Endia to the screens uh when it eventually comes out will be about like 10 or more years um oh. so obviously i'm i barney and norma as characters um started out actually in different web comics i would just kind of use them as the protagonists of whatever i was drawing and mm-hmm. i had um i had one comic called merlin 2000 which was about uh it was like a slasher movie, but Merlin was going around like zapping people. Yes. Um, and he's like, <laughs> Merlin had come back from the dead to like, and so Barney Norma in that. And then um, I also started working on a, a different comic, um, which was called Killing Time. And it, uh, if you've read the books, you'll be kind of familiar with this premise. But um, it was about Barney is a high school wrestler who travels around time fighting history's greatest uh sort of warriors um but it didn't have any kind of it didn't have any like ghosts uh or demons or any or pugsley or any of the other stuff that mm-hmm. um i then added when i i basically pitched these characters to um cartoon hangover they were doing a kind of call for submissions on tumblr and I just sent them all of my Barney Norma comics. And I said, I would love to do a short with these characters, but I don't know what of. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they were just like, well, you know, just think of some settings. I had this advice from them, which I always stick to, which is um, that your characters shouldn't depend on the world to be fun. So, hmm. you know, Barney and Norma should be enjoyable to watch whether they're in a spaceship or a submarine or, you know, back in time or whatever. Mm. Um, I think at the time I was obsessed with a movie called uh, House or Haosu. Uh-huh. Uh, it's like this Japanese horror. I say horror movie, but it's like the same horror level as Scooby-Doo. Um, <laughs> it's more like a psychedelic kind of, it's from the 70s and it's, uh, it's wild. I recommend it as that's as, as my Halloween recommend. Um, <laughs> so I basically stuck Barney and Norma in a haunted house because I was obsessed with that movie and then threw in uh, a dog character uh, who I'd kind of used in a um, uh, short film at uni for animation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really like a assembling, I was like a Frankenstein of all of the things I was interested at the time. Um, and it was such a good experience. I'm still very grateful to them that I didn't have any, uh, you know, I had no credits. I had, I was nothing, but they mm-hmm. liked the characters. They liked my sense of humor. Um, I sent them a storyboard of just, it like didn't have a script. I just sent a storyboard of like Barney and Norma in a haunted house. That's so cool. Wait, <laughs> yeah. so, <laughs> I feel like I, I, well, which also I, w- I wanted to say earlier, um, I would love to see Barney and Norma in a submarine or a spaceship. And <laughs> I was just like, that would just be such a blast. Oh, you could even do like um, like an alien or an aliens inspired sort of thing. Anyways, that's off topic. Um, but so that might happen one day. 
don't blow my mind here hamish my goodness gracious i can't um, um <laughs> i was just gonna finish saying that yeah please basically um we made the short it was great and all of their shorts kind of had uh you know the intention to become a series in mind if there was interest um we showed dead end to uh, ne uh nickelodeon and um they were really into it but didn't go with it um but we like developed it for quite a while there and we added the theme park and all the things that were in dead end the year mm -hmm. and so when nickelodeon passed on it um one thing that cartoon hangover was good about was that you kind of retained all your rights and everything so i oh, just agree. decided to turn it into a webcomic um and at the same time i was then making other shorts with nickelodeon so that's when kind of comics and animation for me started being parallel and sort of feeding into each other i'd sort of test out ideas in comics mm -hmm. um i had like then pretty much eight years of just developing shows um pitching stuff i spent like three years developing a wizard of oz show at the bbc which kind of went nowhere wow. um and so I, I, you know, I, and things were kind of, I would say I was getting my name heard by a lot of industry people. I was getting a kind of reputation as someone who was very good at developing shows, but for whatever reason, they, uh, it's never the show's problem. I mean, sometimes it is, but, uh, channels commission only a set amount every year. And just, I kept finding, you know, it was someone else's year at that time. That's mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I had gotten noticed, uh, I guess, by Netflix. And then I had a meeting with them where I pitched a bunch of different things. None of them were dead end here. Really? And then um, one of them was like, oh, did anything come of that dead end short you made? That was funny. And I like slid the dead end here book across the table. <laughs> it was like, you know. Super uh, casually, like hey, yeah, <laughs> and uh, we gave them some copies of the book, and then all of that process was pretty quick. They really liked it. They could tell that all the things I was pitching were just like, you know, my second choices. I think. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we developed it for about a year with them before we actually got a green light. But comparatively, that was super quick compared to all the other shows I was developing. Um, sometimes I would, you know, develop a show to the point where um, we were like at the head of the company's office and it, we'd have this huge meeting and then we would not hear anything for like nine months while they deliberated and then just get a, sorry, we passed on it. And mm -hmm. so I was developing like, at one point I was involved in the development of three shows that were kind of teetering on happening. Mm -hmm. um and then when dead endio was along i was just like all my focus is on that that has to happen because that would be so cool if that happens <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know i i'm i'm excited i'm excited that this um you know the day i got greenlit i felt like my life changed but it will actually be when the show comes out and people can see if I'm a good showrunner or not, and then hopefully give me more jobs. <laughs> oh, for um, sure. 
I, I'm sure it's gonna be fabulous. Again, yeah. like uh, it's it's such a, I, I like I'm like we'll be gushing about it, you know, throughout mm-hmm. this whole interview. And I'm trying to hold back right now to just not bombard <laughs> you too bad. But it's just such a wonderful story and mm-hmm. world, and I really, and I love that piece of advice from Predator about the characters, um, just because yeah. they are just really fun and engaging on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really beautiful as well. Mm-hmm, very much so. Um, I have uh, two questions. The first is um, just a clarification, just because I'm really curious about it. When you were developing other shows, were those shows that um, like? were assigned to you so to speak and you had to develop them uh or were they shows that like you like it was your task to like develop shows and like create ideas and then like and then you pitch those like how uh yeah um so i um i work at blink industries this amazing animation studio um they've got other shows in development i think the most famous stuff is uh don't hug me, I'm scared. Mm-hmm. Which oh, is this like yes. <laughs> uh, crazy puppet show. Um, it is out of this world. <laughs> yeah, they're they're getting a TV show as well. Like a full are they length. really? It's uh, I have now witnessed what a 22 minute version of that show is, and it. <laughs> like, I it do is, think uh, everyone needs to like book in sort of therapy afterwards, but. Um, <laughs> It's fun. They like uh, their writers' room is just above ours, so there's a lot of um, uh-huh. synergy, I suppose. <laughs> but um, so I was working there, and it was kind of a combo. So um, the Wizard of Oz one, and the reason I feel like I can talk about that one is just because it. I mean, I didn't create the Wizard of Oz, but I. <laughs> that was the one that I um, was pushing for. I love the books, um, and I feel like. There's a lot of Oz projects in the world, and when we were developing it, I was very aware of every single one. Um, mm-hmm. But the one take I'd never seen on The Wizard of Oz was, let's adapt the books, because most would just use the movie as its source material, but the movie, while, you know, great, is an adaptation itself, and it makes its own, you know, I, I could list all of the changes, but... Um, I just felt like no one had taken the book seriously and taken them like, you know, let's adapt this like any other project would adapt source material. Yeah. Um, so, and we really wanted this kind of spirited away-esque tone and, Aww, nice. um, you know, I might do it one day. It's kind of, I, <laughs> I, not to compare myself to Guillermo del Toro, but uh, <laughs> he, I was watching this thing about him and he's like, he loves the book Frankenstein. And he really wants to make Frankenstein one day. And there's like times in his life when he's all the things of the line, he's been given the money and the green, like make Frankenstein. And he's kind of chickened out. And he says that like the day he can make his Frankenstein is the day he can no longer dream about making his Frankenstein. And I feel similar about Wizard of Oz where like, I know my take so well. And I know that it's this like amazing it's like the one thing I can say that I would make that and it would be a masterpiece. But then if I don't make that, then I can still always dream and always know that I can do that one day. And then mm-hmm. maybe like kind of don't want to make it because it won't be a masterpiece. It, <laughs> um, so it's very special to me. It's just like weird thing that uh, I'm going towards one day. So I don't mm-hmm. think I was ready at the time anyway to make it. I um, 
it would have been my first show. Uh, one thing I struggled with was that, and one thing that's very different on Dead Endia is that on Dead Endia, I wrote the books. So people come to me about questions and uh, people come to me when they like, is the tone right? Is this the kind of joke that would happen in Dead Endia? And I can usually just kind of instinctually say yes. Mm-hmm. One of the problems with The Wizard of Oz was that it's public domain. And even though I was taking kind of ownership on it, I wasn't, I'm a no, I was a nobody. I'm still kind of a nobody. You couldn't sell, like you could, here's an example. You could definitely sell Del Toro's Frankenstein and you would know like, oh, I know what this is going to be. I know the kind of vibe this is going to be because I know his work. No one knows who I am and I don't have any kind of style yet. And so mm-hmm. you could sell a show on just the excitement of Hamish Steele's Wizard of Oz. Um, and by the time that everyone involved like read the books, um, it was all of their takes as well. And mm-hmm. everyone was bringing their own like interpretation, which is great. I do like collaboration, but as it was my first project, the weeks would go by and I started to really lose, like, what's the point of me on the show? Like, mm. I, I, no one was sort of entrusting me to write or direct or really... Mm-hmm showrun or anything so i just ended up being this kind of executive producer who had opinions about wizard of oz but watching it turn into something else oh okay um so i don't know why i went on that weird uh <laughs> no no actually that's a, that's it's an, it's, it's an important point I, yeah. I think to make yeah i'll just say because i'll just try and answer your question that was the <laughs> project great. i was trying to lead and then on the side because when you're in development, there's not much money and you can be like months apart from meetings. So I had several of it in the go and I was like a um, showrunner for hire for a few other projects. Um, mm-hmm. Some of which I really lovely, you know, I really did believe in. Um, there's, I, they're the ones I can't really speak about, but there's definitely ones where I was shown a book, you know, adapt this book how would you do this? And there were others where they were like, we own the rights to this title for a show. Try and <laughs> make something good out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so often the first thing I'd have to work out was just how much can I creatively um, add to this? And there was a few projects I was offered where They'd done all the development and I was just going to come in to, you know, deliver the episodes. Mm-hmm. And there's no shame in that, but I just don't think I'm very good at that. <laughs> um, so I remember having a, a like pitch for a show, uh, like a bunch of people who wanted me to direct a show, pitch the show to me. And I just like asked a bunch of questions, which kind of dismantled the whole idea for the show <laughs> i was like well this aspect seems offensive this aspect doesn't seem very funny and this aspect aspect has been done a million times over so i'll change those and then i'll take the job and they quietly declined but um <laughs> uh, probably probably for the best <laughs> yeah it sounded like they were questions that needed to be asked yes <laughs> and i think definitely at the time writing comics was my way of just being in charge of something even uh, having a publisher, they would only, you know, I had a script editor who just improved everything and they were, but like, I was still, I felt a lot more in control of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, while my day job as animation developer was sometimes a little depressing or 
Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it seems like as an animation developer, so like, well, actually, all that kind of brings me back to my my second question that I wanted to ask, because just from hearing you talk about all of that, it sounds like you really have to become, like, whether it's developing a show or uh, or just a story in general, that you really have to be familiar with what the, not even familiar, you really have to be intimate with what the heart of that story is. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it has to be very defined. and. Uh, And like, you just like, you just like, you gotta know. So my second question along those lines is for you, what would you say is the heart of dead India? Well, (laughs) just to to boil it down, you know, (laughs) I think it's changed a lot over the years. And I don't think, I don't always know if it hits this, um, perfectly. Mm -hmm. And I also know that this is a huge cliche. I've often said it's about found family, which I know is also what the Fast and Furious movies are about, but <laughs> it's, um, and it seems like every Disney show is about this, but there is a certain aspect of found family um, that's incredibly queer. And the um, main like <sighs> driving sort of feeling, I think, is, a bunch of people who are born into a world that wasn't necessarily designed with them in mind, mm-hmm. uh, finding each other and understanding each other and um, sort of protecting the kind of unit they have. And that's the kind of ba- the main vibe I want Dead Entia to have, that these very, very different uh, characters, not all of them are even people, have this kind of common unity of uh we stick together because the world isn't made for us and not to sort of spoil where uh this takes the story but the show uh and the book comics are about demons and demons are a kind of extended metaphor for people who have been demonized Mm. so Mm. um not only just sort of marginalized, but people who people are afraid of. Um, And just this kind of like extended theme about like everything, the way that the world is, was built specifically. Like it's not the natural order of things. It was designed this way to make certain people smaller. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I sometimes get quite serious when I talk about this, but I mean, ultimately it is, you know, a funny cartoon about a like possessed dog, but um, it's, there's definitely times in the writing where I I tweak things because the way we're, so like the way that demons are meant to be represented is that um, they, you know, start off very much as the monster of the week and the villain of everything. But um it's just the way that we we've been told to be scared of demons. We've been told to think that, you know, horns and tails and all that stuff is scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been taught that and we can unteach that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's kind of, I guess that's the heart. Um, it's like understanding differences. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, all of these things are, are like staples of 
kids TV. Like I'm not saying any of this is hugely original, but um, I think one of the things I did want to do with this is that in a lot of uh, shows which try and have these kinds of allegories about, you know, understanding each other and whatever, their protagonists are usually straight white people mm-hmm. who are like experiencing oppression for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really want to do that. Like, I think it's, it's not to me, the, the, you know, having LGBT lead characters is what makes them understand demons. It's kind of in, it's, it's sort of, um, it's meant to not be that important. It's like kind of incidental to the story, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it was also vital in some ways. It's it's also what um, makes our characters see the humanity in others by kind of seeing something of themselves in the other demon characters. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot of themes going on. Yeah. No, um, it's great. And, and that comes across really quickly in the story mm-hmm. too. I mean, um, in chapter one of, uh, of the webcomic, and when Barney first realizes that the haunted house is truly haunted, like um, you have all these really like unique demons coming out and it's all just very sudden. And, uh, and, 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 and I don't know, I just, I, I love the splash of all like the different designs and, and it's like, oh no, they're demonic. And, you know, like your first impression of that, then, but that could be like, oh no, they're demons. Are they dangerous? And it's like, like very quickly you realize like oh no not at all they're just like they're literally just uh just here hanging out and it's just um i feel like the comic does a really really quick job of uh uh pulling the reader like right into that world and um mm-hmm. just creating all of these uh and connecting the reader basically just um like with everybody i don't think i'm phrasing i don't think i'm phrasing this very well <laughs> no i think but, i mean before we, um, you know, before we were recording, we were talking about Charmed and Buffy and, and shows like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think they're great. But in those mm-hmm. uh, shows, in their interpretation, like demons and vampires have, um, I'm trying to think, there's like an example where you see Buffy, you know, killing vampires every week and demons willy nilly. <laughs> <laughs> interesting yeah, time yeah. phrase but um you know but when when a character kills a human it's like a whole different situation it's like mm-hmm. really serious um and i think you know i don't want that India to say like we still have monster of the weeks so we still have like bad demon villains but demon doesn't mean anything it's just like these are different kinds of people so there's you know uh jerks and <laughs> friends amongst them um, they don't have to agree on everything, but to kind of label a very, uh, like you say, like very varied group of characters as demons and therefore their evil is bad. So, mm-hmm. um, and to go a little bit further into the second book, the same is said about, we introduce later on angels and yes. it's the same thing where like a demon and angel are words in some ways, they're propaganda that gives mm-hmm. you a kind of um, first impression of where someone's morality is going to be, but that shouldn't be the case. Um, mm-hmm. So, and yeah, I think in that very first chapter, Barney is freaking out and he's seeing demons for the first time. He doesn't know what's going on. And Norma kind of walks in and goes like, ugh, Courtney, this is just 
you know, let me deal with this. Yeah. Like she just, she sort of knows them. Um, just so nonchalant about it. Nor Norma's so great. I love her. <laughs> oh, I was going to jump in and say, um, given that um, obviously you, you know, Dead India inside and out, what, what is it like inviting new people in to help you craft and expand on <laughs> a story that has been so personal to you for so, so long? Uh, it's been pretty great because I um, I don't, how do I phrase, I, I want to say I don't think I'm the best writer in the world without it sounding like I think I'm the worst writer in the world. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm, I'm not, I think I don't assume what I've written is suddenly the best it can be. Yeah. Um, I wrote the whole webcomic on my own and for the second book, um i um was given a script editor and she uh, is like the first person to kind of write dead endia other than me and then on the actual show um you know we have a head of we have a lead writer and we have a whole writer's room um it's honestly really nice like the first time i saw a script of Dead Endia that I hadn't written. Um, it was just kind of wild. It was kind of like wild seeing other people's interpretations of the characters. And of course, mm -hmm. some of it doesn't feel right. And first few drafts, we were just trying to find the voices. Um, our characters are slightly different in the show, um, mm -hmm. just because shows require a different, <laughs> uh, different kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. It was great. I mean, I love the collaboration. It's, it's, I found it really hard to like write a document about what Dead India is and what kind of things is, uh, you know, fits the world and doesn't. Um, it was more a case of reacting to stuff when I saw it. Um, right. And seeing, you know, certain things were just, I think initially certain jokes and certain like, um, I think some of the early drafts, the characters felt really different because we are trying to go for something slightly different than other shows and I think some of the writers were coming off other shows and I remember finding initial drafts all the characters felt a bit too mean mm -hmm. um, and you know they didn't seem to like each other as much as I wanted them to I felt like it felt like a lot of people have been trained to think comedy comes from conflict mm -hmm. uh, but seeing characters like enjoy each other's company is just as fun sometimes yeah it's really lovely you know, there's still conflict. The characters are quite different. So, uh, you know, they don't understand each other all the time. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was just like a case of reactive stuff and also like allowing myself to uh, allow the world to be bigger than I thought it was and allowed like other design sensibilities. I, I not to toot my own horn, but I think one of the reasons <laughs> why I am okay at show running is um i'm like a huge fan of everyone and i'm very excited by working with such good artists and such good you know everyone like such good writers and, and voice actors and all that stuff like i i get very excited to collaborate um yeah. and i that's a surprise to me because i think my experience on the wizard of oz show was being frustrated about not having enough control and not being able mm -hmm. to like make people understand my vision and 
I have to say, I think having the graphic novels is hugely helpful. Um, and I'm excited that there's a few other animated shows happening based on uh, comics now, um, which obviously has been like the standard in Japan for ages. But I think over here, um, they weren't so connected for a while. Um, yeah. So I think having the books is really useful because people can kind of use that as a starting off point. There's been times where art, the art team has um, developed a character for a really long time and I've still said, like, can we just make them look like they do in the books? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but just because, like, we, we always experiment. Anything that's in the books, we do try and experiment and see if there's other ways to make them look. But um, mm -hmm. occasionally it does just, they don't feel right. But other times there's, there's whole new characters, whole new storylines. Um, you know, this may be leading into too much information territory, but I think our first episode is quite similar to our first chapter. But then after that, uh, the story is going pretty different directions. They're sort oh, of cool. different. Uh -huh. they're, so, they're sort of different routes to the same destinations. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting because I think in a lot of adaptation, you're having to cut things down because usually films are much shorter than books. And uh, even in um, TV shows, usually you're having to kind of cut some stories that are no longer relevant. But for us, it feels a lot more like we're expanding everything because I always struggle with um, page space and like mm -hmm. uh, both the scripts for the, <laughs> the script for um, the second Dead Endia book was like three times the length of what actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I cut whole characters, whole like chapters and stuff. Oh wow! Um, so we're really getting to explore the world a lot more, which is nice. That's really That's cool. wonderful. What uh, like I know that we can't really talk too much about like maybe what's what's specifically in the show, but like was there a reason why you decided to uh, why you all decided it was best to deviate uh from like from the graphic novel was it was it solely to expand the world and you could expand it better that way or was it just to create or was it to like created like kind of like a different alternate version to get to that destination or uh or what would you say uh there's uh, there's a huge amount of reasons um yeah. it's really a lot easier to talk about if you I've seen the episodes, but um, <laughs> uh, I definitely started out just adapting the chapters into episodes. Um, the first script I wrote for the show, I just adapted the chapter and mm -hmm. um, we realized it didn't super work. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it needed a little bit more of that kind of three act structure put in. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think we just, you know, I, I started writing more episodes um our characters like i said are slightly different um not too much but uh there's just all kinds of reasons there's definitely times when we've gone really far away and we're feeling a little lost in the writing and then i like remember there's a book and we can go oh what if we just like <laughs> did this chapter and um <laughs> that happens more often um like i said i i i I've also always felt that if someone else were adapting this, I would have been very, you know, stick to the book, stick to the book. Mm -hmm. um, but because I'm getting to retell it, um, I feel a lot more freedom to, you know, no one's 
people might be annoyed, you know, they, I might skip over things that they really like in the book, but mm-hmm. um, there's not going to be this like war between the creator of the book and the people who directed the, you know, the film out of the book. Yeah. It, it's all, I, I also think there's this like need for people to want a definitive version of something. Mm-hmm. And it kind of confuses me. I, I mean, recently there's been all this talk about like another live action um, Last Airbender thing. And I think it comes from this, pe- people have this need for like definitive versions of things, but each format is its own thing. So mm-hmm. um, the comic book version is the definitive comic book version, but the animated version will be the definitive animated version. And like, um, both can exist. So I'd rather them give the audience different things, maybe. Yeah. No, that's really exciting. I think that's a really refreshing take to have on it as well. Rather than trying to fit things into the one box, it's kind of, you can have versions of something they don't have yeah. to be exactly the same but still you get the same um kind of vibe from it or the same sort of um i don't know message through it or uh, the same kinds of stories just not by the exact same like you say it's a different route to get to the same point and you get to see different cool stuff on the way that you wouldn't otherwise get to see if you always stuck to the same route yeah absolutely that's really cool um, just for my own curiosity, uh, kind of what does being a showrunner involve? Because of, I've like heard the term a lot, but I don't think I ever really understand what hmm. it means, like either day to day or sort of like long term. What do you kind of have to do if you're a showrunner? Um, I uh, One thing that's been nice is that Netflix have put me in touch with a lot of their other showrunners. Um, and I've got to meet quite a few now. I've kind of realized that the job is, it's whatever you want it to be in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I know of showrunners who um, are very confident artists and have like a real um, driving like need to be involved in the sort of design of the show. Um, I'm not really that. I prefer writing. Um, so... I write, I don't write much of the show, but I've written certain episodes and um, I'm very involved in the redrafting of episodes and the writer's room and everything like that. But Mm. I know other showrunners who are directors, other showrunners who are much more producers and don't, um, I I wouldn't say they're not creative, but they don't don't put their fingers into the creative aspects. Mm -hmm. I know some showrunners who don't even go to writing meetings and they just sort of guide the show's tone and um so it does it it's a very important job but it is totally up to the showrunner and the particular production to define it yeah i spend a lot of my time just kind of answering questions and approving things and um i mean sometimes i think my job is to be a hype man (laughs) (laughs) just keep everyone's morale up um i bet you're really good at that uh i (laughs) i think so (laughs) i have to say i show running your very first show 
while your entire crew is in lockdown is quite <laughs> tough. Yes. Uh, we've managed it okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really hoping at the end of it, when the show comes out, that everyone on the crew is very proud that they were able to make a TV show from their bedrooms. Um, I've not met like 90% of the crew now and like in person, I, we, it's been tough. (laughs) Um, so in some ways, like I don't, I almost don't feel like it's real still because I'm, my life hasn't changed at all. I'm still like in my bedroom, in my little office room, replying to emails and doing Google Hangouts and stuff. Yeah. Um, we have this whole studio like kitted out to move into, but it's mostly empty, just waiting yeah. for it to be safe. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, for, for us, um, the, the work that I'm doing at work uh, it's all been remote lately. It's all been animation and that whole pipeline and whatnot. And it is really strange because when when you hit a you know a massive deadline or you reach a milestone, if you were in the office, you'd be able to be like, yeah, let's crack out the beers and let's have some cake and you know mm-hmm. watch the watch what we've got so far and like just generally celebrate in person. It's very different, um, sort of not only trying to keep up that kind of um enthusiasm for working on it um but also just kind of feel that that connectedness with with the people that you're making it with it is a very strange situation yeah the day we announced the show was pretty strange (laughs) um we found out about an hour before that it would be announced um we'd known it would be that week um because we had to create you know, publicity materials and stuff, but we didn't know exactly when. Um, so it got announced. We all tried to celebrate over like Slack, but <laughs> it kind of didn't work. And then an hour after it got announced, we did a um, table read with the cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and none of the cast knew who else was in the show. <laughs> so wow. they, all, they all like joined a Google Hangout an hour after finding out who else was in the show. Um, <laughs> It was very strange. Uh, yeah. It was very exciting. And I was still trying to like go to meetings while my phone was like exploding on notifications. <laughs> um, but that was the, one of the few times we all felt some connectedness. I mean, we, we've tried lots of things. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that in like March and April, we were doing all kinds of Zoom parties and, and things like that. We've now reached the point where there's like eras of lockdown. Like, we're now in the era where people don't want an extra Google Hangout meeting that week. It's true. They're they're not interested in, like, Zoom quiz parties or whatever. But, yeah, it's been tough. Like, it's tough, but I'm still very proud of everyone. Yeah. What what would you say in this current era of lockdown work uh, has proved to be your most most successful, like, morale-boosting technique? (laughs) Um, Do you just send lots of emojis to people? (laughs) (laughs) We, I'm trying to think. I mean, one of the things is that on a show, I don't know if people realize this, but it's not like the whole crew starts on day one. Mm. We, it's constantly changing. So we've had some people say goodbye already. 
just because you know people have contracts they get other jobs yeah um, and every week there's usually like two or three new people um so i have to i think like announcing the show was a big moment for everyone um whenever new people join it's always exciting um i started doing these like daily affirmation videos uh at the start of lockdown when i thought it would be like a month yeah. um <laughs> and that sort of I kind of run out of costumes and songs to sing. <laughs> uh, but also, I think one of our best moments was um, a few weeks ago, we did like a show and tell presentation uh, because all the departments are quite separate. And that's mm. even before lockdown. Like, um, I think everyone like has a few points of contact, but they don't know what else is going on in the show. Mm. So we did this like show and tell presentation where everyone, every department showed all of their amazing artwork and character designs. And, oh, and cool. uh, I know some people got quite emotional because they didn't really know what they were working on mm -hmm. in oh. some ways. Um, so yeah, that was cool. That's really lovely. That's really nice. I feel like that's also like, uh, whenever pandemic lockdown stuff, uh, ends whenever that happens mm -hmm. <laughs> i feel i feel like that'd be a really good um uh thing just to bring into like like a studio space too just again celebrating together and showing everyone like guys yeah. this is what like we're all making right now because uh because yeah. it's so it's so worth it to celebrate that and <laughs> oh that's really lovely i feel like sometimes it's quite uh, i mean i i've never been on a giant production but i i would imagine that being on a big production with so many different departments it can be quite easy to forget that you're kind of all on the same project mm -hmm. so i yeah. think it's really nice to kind of like underline and strengthen those links and bonds between everybody and sort of say yeah we're all moving forward together and creating this super awesome thing do you include everyone it's like almost over 100 people Wow, who, cool. like I, I, when I say include everyone, I mean there's the day-to-day -day people, but then on top of that, there's the cast and there's our like composers and yeah, uh, everyone at Netflix who are involved. Like, there's I mean, if you include all the Netflix people, I don't even know half of them. There'll um, there'll be even more people involved. So it's pretty huge, and um, I tend to deal a lot with the heads of department, but I'm still trying to get to know everyone as best as I can mm -hmm. uh, but still strange I, I saw like someone for the first time off of a camera like in the studio the other day and I knew exactly who they were and you know I, I said hello and everything but I realized I'd never like actually talked to them I didn't know how tall they were I didn't know <laughs> what they oh. like what, what they usually have for lunch and you know yeah. all these weird things that you just like know if you'd been working in a studio for all these months. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's so true. I hadn't thought about that because like our studio, we've transitioned to lockdown, but we've been working together for a year already. And um, so to kind of be meeting people who you've been working with for a while, but you've never actually met in person, you kind of forget all those small things that you would normally pick up on and know about people and it's just so strange and interesting at the same time. We found you really do actually have to book in those like water cooler chats right. because they are so important. Um, mm. So it's weird. Yeah. It's not ideal. There's some days actually where we were, where like everything goes wrong with the technical side of things and, <laughs> you know, the internet's down and all this kind of stuff. And 
it's those days when you're like, huh, I guess the pandemic actually is affecting us negatively. But yeah. <laughs> um, lots of days I'm just mostly impressed that we've pressed on so much. I, like I say, it's not ideal, but I'm glad that we have this option. I'm glad, I feel very grateful that we have a job and we get to make something we can look forward to. Um, you know, because lots of people aren't that lucky. Yeah, for sure. 100%. Plus, I feel like, I feel like it's kind of cool to, to like, um, I mean, again, it's not like, it's not preferred, like to have to work <laughs> during pandem- pandemic, but, um, but I don't know. I feel like it's also, there's something kind of uh, cool and magical in the fact that like that you, that despite the circumstances that you are still able to all work together to make something like really beautiful. And like, it's not, a, again, not ideal circumstances, but like, you're still making it happen. And that's just like, mm. like, I don't know. That's just, uh, just kind of inspiring actually. Yeah. Well, like, Hey, if you want to, you can do this. So, and you got this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, kind of, so kind of, uh, so following up on that, we, we were wondering just again, being a showrunner for dead, dead India and working together, uh, like with all these people and, you know, to create the show, did you like, have you had any really big learning moments? Uh, during the show's creation that made an impact on you? Um, yeah, presumably. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm still learning. I'm still trying to get good at this. I think the lockdown, um, one of the things about it is we, we locked down the production and worked from home the week before the rest of the country did because we went, we were like, let's do a test week. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then we just never came home. Uh, I say I said home. <laughs> that's the other thing is that like people, I always tell everyone that starts that you're not working at home. You are working during a global pandemic, and that's different. That's uh, it's a you know that's hugely taxing on just your emotions, and mm. um, not everyone is in the same situation. You're also living at work, which is like a whole other thing people need to remember. Um, yeah. And so I think one of the things was when we locked down for that test week, we put in a lot of like lunchtime social chats and and all these like things to recreate work in the studio. Um, And then we didn't change it for like quite a few months, even though people's needs changed. And um, treating each week differently, like, Sometimes, you know, having some stability is good, but you also have to adapt to just the kind of changing moods. Like I said, eras, like in the UK, mm-hmm. I think the public mood has shifted so many times. Yeah. Uh, there was kind of this sense of camaraderie at the start and then a sense of exhaustion and betrayal and, <laughs> and all kinds of stuff. And just trying to like, you know, ride the waves um and and adapt to how people are feeling because in one way of thinking of 2020 is that like nothing happened and uh, everything shut down but also like that's not true there's been constant chaos and 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 some very like triggering weeks in the news mm-hmm. cycle for a lot of your crew and you're just trying to like i say adapt and um i think one of the things um any person who's a showrunner or just like has a job where they a lot of people consider you the boss is riding that 
line between wanting to be friends with everyone and also having to like resolve when bad stuff goes down wanting to like feel in charge but not like a dictator you know <laughs> i've heard about these kind of tyrant showrunners on other shows and i never wanted to be that and there's been times when i may have gone too far the other direction and just been like i'm everyone's mate um <laughs> Because you still have to have those hard chats. And mm-hmm. I've learned a lot about myself. Um, but you don't stop learning. You just kind of keep developing, keep evolving, um, keep thinking you're going to do better next time. And then you do, but then there's other problems that you need to fix for next time after that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Too many things I think I've learned. I can't really <laughs> settle on one. No, that's fair. It sounds like you just take it, uh, you just take it all in stride and yeah. you just try to do your best to live in the present moment and do the best that you can for yourself and for the people around you. So, yeah. 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 Off the back of that, uh, like if, if someone else is wanting to embark on this or is about to embark on the same journey, do you have a big piece of advice that that would be helpful to them is there one thing they were just like oh definitely always do this or for showrunners or just anyone I guess I guess sort of from the angle of being a showrunner but I guess maybe anybody who's who's um you know turning their project into an animated series really um I'll try and choose one I don't know if this is the the one but it's one I'm thinking of right now yeah go for it um is the person watching your show doesn't know who you are and they don't know you can't you can't just hope they'll assume the best of you or assume your intentions because they don't know and so i always try and think of someone watching and someone um there's times when we like have been talking about wanting to represent stuff and we have to think like, well, they don't know where we're coming from yet. They don't know who we are. Mm. They don't necessarily trust us. Is this the right time to show that in the show? I'm trying to, maybe this is a bad thing to talk about because I'm talking very specifically about examples I can't speak about. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's just like, I always just think about that viewer. And if you're making a kid's show, like, I'll be honest, I know that a few people are going to watch the show just because they hear that it has a trans lead character and they want to watch the show. And mm-hmm. so that's actually been one of the aspects I've thought about a lot from since it, when it's like a Tumblr webcomic, you can do a lot of shorthand and you can sort of assume that your audience are going to be, you know, you're not going to have to do like LGBT representation 101 to them. Um, And then when it became a book, I thought about it being picked off the shelves and I had to sort of make things a little clearer. Um, And I think in the show, you know, I'm thinking about how people might be watching this with their parents. Um, I wish I could talk about what I'm talking about. (laughs) I wish wish the show was out already because I think (laughs) we do. We handle everything. I think we handle things really well. I'm just saying Mm. that I think a bit Mm. of advice, if you're going to be a showrunner, is it's People don't know who you are and people don't know, people can't have a conversation with you. When I did the web comic, I would post every page with like a paragraph underneath the page of like, you know, commentary. And that's not going to be the case here. And people 
you don't know who's going to be watching. Um, hmm, I don't think this is a good point. <laughs> um, you can pick another one if you want. I mean, honestly, it does sound really good because it's it's easy to kind of forget that obviously you've not met everybody who's going to be watching it and yeah they they kind of don't necessarily know where you are coming from and kind of where to pin it like what the context is for what you're sharing mm -hmm. yeah also oh go ahead no, sorry. please go ahead oh <laughs> well no I, I was going to um, i was going to ask another uh question uh really quickly so uh, uh you asked yours i think i i uh i couldn't think of a particular bit of advice because i still feel like i need a lot of advice <laughs> um, maybe I, the advice is to always keep asking for advice when you're doing it i would definitely say that you you don't know best and i always think this isn't this isn't your show it's all of the crew's show um and it's everyone who what like it, here's the thing i got asked a um question from netflix in a, in a show and tell presentation to them where they said what do you want people to say about this show and i found it quite a strange question because i don't want to tell them what to think about the show i would love to idea to be involved in the conversation it got mentioned brtqia plus representation in animation which i felt very pleased about because I just want to be part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But if people don't like it and if it does things wrong, I kind of want people to tell me that. And I kind of, I don't want people to feel obligated mm -hmm. to like it. I want people to be, I want people actually engage with it. And, you know, I, and if it's, sometimes I think it's watch the show because those people would defend your show mm -hmm. to the bitter end. Whereas if you like become, uh, the media that everyone references people can get really sick of it and i i just don't want people to treat it like they have to say certain things about yeah. it i want people to just be honest about it <laughs> i get very frustrated by conversations when i can like sense insincerity or sense people like trying to think of the best way to say things because i just would rather people i have a very thick skin and i'd rather people just tell me what's wrong and i'll i don't know I, I'm, I'm going off in all kinds of weird directions right now, but um, ask your question. <laughs> no, I'm trying to, no, that, that got my wheels turning. And also I, I really loved your answer too, because it just kind of mm. sounds like, again, you know, we shouldn't have the expectation that uh, one, I think it's important to like, I, I really appreciate and like that you're, you know, that, that you want to, that you want to be a part of the conversation um, for representation. I think that's really, really nice. But yeah, and I also think it's really important, like, to acknowledge it, like, like, I don't know how it's going to be received. And I don't know, like, basically just knowing that, like, like, nothing can or should try to be perfect for one. And like, again, we're all just trying to, like, be the best to do the best that we can and just, like, try to do good. Like, that's all that we're wanting to do. And so, like, some, something that uh, I'm just trying to think about how to phrase it now I've something that I really appreciate in Dead India, and I think a lot of readers do, is just that, like you said, it's just, it's, I, I think it's very authentic and it's very natural. Mm -hmm. And I really, and it's really nice that, like, yeah, you just have these, like, I mean, I'm going to say human. Yeah, I know that we have, like, a lot of, like, different creatures and things, but, like, <laughs> you have all of these, like, very human experiences and people are just, 
like joyful and happy or silly or there's even these um or like you're but you're also not afraid to touch on like maybe like darker subjects or like just these very unfortunate things that like can happen in a person's life and you know when they're living in this world that as you've said before like wasn't necessarily like like uh made made for them so to speak and um so kind of so <laughs> I always want to ask two things. I just, it just occurred to me. I was like, so two things I want, I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, so one is that if we're wanting to aspire to portray like, you know, like these natural like people and relationships in our own stories and, and we want to portray, you know, what happens in your character's lives, honestly and authentically, but also, I think you do a really good job of doing of portraying them sensitively as well. Like you never uh, like the story never wallows in anything, but it also doesn't treat it as this thing to just like brush off. Like it's mm-hmm. again, I don't know if this is a spoiler, so we can cut this if you'd like. But uh, like when it's revealed that Barney uh, self harmed, um, that was a very very strong moment uh, reading the comic uh, for myself, and it's just like mm-hmm. and and you really and you feel the um, and you really feel for Barney. <laughs> And mm. I, so yeah, so again, appreciated one, appreciated again that, you know, you didn't stray from that because, um, you know, that, you know, that happens in people's lives. What about, <laughs> I just lost my point. Sorry, now I'm going all around in circles. So basically, do you have any, when you were writing this, how did, did you have any like thoughts or feelings about how you wanted to portray and include these like, these unfortunately too common occurrences which are darker but like you but you still maintained like this really like like fun tone in the comic too like it was just it, it was very well-rounded i uh what's the question that i'm trying to ask basically how <laughs> did you actively strive to like to keep the story how did you do it i think that's all that i tried to <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I'll just speak on this. I appreciate um, you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'll be honest. One of the biggest differences between making the comic and making the show is when I was making the comic, I kind of didn't think about it too much. Mm-hmm. Um, m- myself and my friend group, we're all um, slightly broken people. <laughs> and we have a lot of you know darkness in our lives. But we're not very dark people, and we're, um, I think there's this idea that if any hint of a kind of grounded, dark aspect of a character's life makes its way into a show or comic, then it kind of poisons the barrel and it, it makes the whole thing really somber. Mm. But, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but depressed people aren't depressed people aren't quote unquote sad Mm -hmm. that there's a way there's a very kind of um flat way i think of representing depression of oh they're sad all the time and everything that touches like depressing Mm -hmm. but a lot of people i know who battle with depression are funny and are you know have a lot of joy in their lives it's just they can't cling to it it like falls through their hands like sand and i think mm. um a character like barney i think maybe if someone hadn't really grappled with depression they might find him slightly inconsistent 
or the or like he seems quite happy and gung ho and you know mm-hmm. like a very positive character um and that can exist at the same time as you know this darkness in his life mm. um and i think like i said i didn't think about it too much when making the comics because the web comic um i didn't really like write too much i i knew the plot points i needed to get to but i kind of treated it like live storytelling so i sort of took the story in the direction i felt like at the time and the kind of feeling so was feeling or the conversation i've been having with friends to ask to interject really quickly is that particular plot point with barney was that pre-planned or was that a kind of spur of the moment like this is appropriate for barney and like an actual and, and you kind of discovered like oh man he went through this um um it's weird i there's things i know about the characters which have never been said mm-hmm. um i just and i didn't even like write a document i just have this I've written for Barney and Norma for such a long time that I just know the things, the details of their life. Um, I know, I mean, one thing with Barney is that um, as a trans character, it was really important to me that this whole story is a post coming out story, that he came out to his parents. Uh, the show and the <laughs> books now have different canons, but like in the books, he came out, you know, maybe four or five years ago. Um, and often with trans characters, once the coming out reveal is done, uh, they don't often get given much else to do or don't get given, uh, I think a lot of LGBT people, their story is so, their stories are often so fixated on these like, uh, milestones, but they are like people outside of all this mm-hmm. and they have lives. And so, um, I just like really knew, I, I know a lot about Barney and Norma's lives and their history um there's still stuff about them that like isn't relevant to any plot really but it doesn't form a lot of who they are mm. um so i never thought about it as plot points or reveals it's just like uh the moment you're talking about there's a bit in the book where pugsy wants to cheer barney up because he's uh things about him he's like acting quite depressed and pugsy as his dog, as someone who has seen him uh, in those moments before, is scared that, you know, the signs that Barney is displaying will lead to something he's done before. So it's like, I'm, it wasn't like an idea for a twist or a plot reveal, it was just knowing who his characters are and what they've been through. Mm-hmm. To me, it just sort of made sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think... And there's also things like you responded to it, but I feel like the way it's done, it might fly over a lot of people's heads. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually had to do a double take with it, to be honest, because it was just so it was just kind of there and like in a flash. And then and then that was it. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. And which, again, I also thought was really like um I thought the execution of that was so cool, because, again, I feel like the like cliche of handling like you know, like that sort of subject matter would be like, look at this thing that happened. And it's just, um, you know, it's just like, Hey, this happened and I care for you. And I just want to be there for you. Like, it's like pugs, like it was pugsly wanting to look out for Barney, like was still the main point. And it wasn't that like this happened to you. Mm -hmm. Like pugsly, pugsly was, uh, pugsly and his care for Barney was still 
the focus of like all of that big moment. Um, also, as an aside, I super loved that. <laughs> and again, if uh, uh, people read the comic, please. So minor spoiler, little spoiler warning. <laughs> but I really loved, um, I forget the exact name of the creature, but uh, the one where it was just absolute positivity and how that's destructive as well. I was like, thank you. Oh, this is fabulous. <laughs> and uh, so that, that mm. was super cool. So, so a small aside there, I just had to say. But anyways. Um, I was... Uh I wanted to just explain one thing because I think this was this is one of the things that's different about the show is that um, the stakes to get it right are so much higher. Mm-hmm. So when I was making this comic, it was really like, well, these are my and my friends' experiences, and uh, this is just the world I know around me. Um, it's weird for a show about like talking dogs and demons. It, like Dead India is meant to be set in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for you know it has like other worlds in it but it's not set in a fantasy world mm-hmm. um and when we're making the show all the kind of plot points i was just writing because they were my experiences or whatever um you'd find out oh we need like a consultant for that and we need like you know to check this to make sure it's doing it right and that's stuff which you know i approve and i've requested it but it is a slightly weird experience to um <laughs> to do to have like oh i wrote my experiences in the script now we have an external person checking that the experiences are correct <laughs> to people who have these experiences mm-hmm. even though they're my experiences so you know like yeah, yeah. It, it it's necessary and it's very good and i've become very um you know i love working with those teams mm. but uh it, it's very different and i think that's partially like I was trying to get around to the point earlier of saying you don't really know who's watching this, and you don't know who your audience is, and how you don't know the context of this. They don't necessarily know that the person writing this uh, has had similar experiences. We tried to make sure our, our writers' room was, well, we did make sure our writers' room was filled with people whose experiences reflected our characters, mm-hmm. um, but they don't necessarily know that. And one of the problems with a character like Barney on TV is there's not many other characters like him. And so everything he does and says has a lot more weight uh, in terms of representation. Mm-hmm. Like it's tough to want to just tell Barney's story, but know that in terms of, you know, animated shows for kids, are there other like trans lead characters and, um, are you like creating stuff that's going to be tropes in the future or are you, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's interesting. That's why I say I wanted to be involved in the conversation because even if we do everything right, I still think, you know, three or four years after the show comes out, it might feel super dated or mm-hmm. it might feel like, you know, well then I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's an, that's an interesting and like important thing to remember with growth though. Like even like, like whether it's like a, well, no, I guess this would be generational too, because I, I was thinking about like, you know, like parents or grandparents and then like kids or even like in the span of like uh show generations and things like uh, how shows were 10 years ago versus how they are now. Like mm-hmm. it's, 
I think you just have to accept and kind of relish in the fact that and and almost and really hope for that like the next generation is going to be a step ahead of you in that regard. Like in a way, it's kind of like you hope that certain aspects could. I mean, like that for basically that for the times and uh, and at the time that you're in that, like yeah, you're trying to do the best that you can, and then hopefully down the line. Like they'll be even better and it'll just get like better and better and better in terms of representation and how things are shown. And uh, mm. um, again, there's something kind of be- like, I feel like there's something beautiful in that. Like yeah. uh, mm-hmm. we're all just continually growing and we can't take the next step up until, you know, like we've taken that first step. So, <laughs> yeah. It would be super cool if in 10 years after Dead Endia came out, Dead Endia was seen as like really offensively like <laughs> yeah, oh man and like <laughs> like i can't believe that's what passed for representation then that's like you know right i've been watching this show called happy endings which i watched when it came out and it's from 2011 mm-hmm. has a gay character in called max who at the time i was like obsessed with mm-hmm. because he was the closest thing to me feeling represented by a character and i've been watching it now and i'm just like Oh my god, I'm so sad for past Hamish. That that's like what mattered because it's like so like it's uh it's a great performance, but it's like the most straight washed, like not like those gays type character ever. And I think at the time that was like what I needed, but now it reads as so um like internalized homophobic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and I don't, I, I really, really don't think, you know, Dead Endia goes in that direction. No. I don't know how many gay people were actually in the uh, happy ending writer's room, <laughs> but um, it would just be cool if like, Bar- like Barney and there's other shows in development, which, you know, have trans characters, but be good if this like first wave um, weren't the be all and end all and that like later down the line, like I've always tried to make people know that Dead Endia isn't like, the trans show mm-hmm. um it mostly doesn't focus on it it focuses on demons and, and all kinds of other stuff but i think that show the trans show <laughs> for lack of a better <laughs> word i think that kind of show deserves to exist and i think mm. there needs to be more um there just needs to be more yeah just to say we hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with Hamish make sure to join us in the next episode as we continue the conversation in part two can't wait to see you then see you real soon bye the DIY animation show is an indie production from your hosts Jessica Dahl and Lauren Morse our theme music was provided by Azure Flux Subscribe at DIYanimation.show. If you liked this podcast, maybe you'll enjoy more art and story podcasts from our friends at the Oatly Academy of Visual Storytelling, featuring insights from some of the most inspiring voices in animation, games, biz effects, comics, and children's books. Find them at friendsofdiya.com. We'll see you next time. Bye!